Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. This is the third and final episode in a three-part series on cities in Canada. So far, we've tackled how cities fit within the Constitution, and we've explored progressive critiques and visions for city life in the 21st century. Now, we talk about cities all the time, not that they get the critical detailed coverage and attention they deserve, but talk about cities and life within them is common, mostly complaining, but not always. But how do cities work? That is, how do they actually work? And how will they work now that Toronto and Ottawa mayors have access to the quote-unquote strong mayor powers afforded to them by the provincial government? To the outsider, the process of municipal governance might seem arcane, and that's probably because for most people, the process is arcane. Lucky for us, our guest today knows the ins and outs of city governance, and he's going to share his secrets with us. My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Sean Menard, City of Ottawa Councillor for Capital Ward. Okay, let's start with Ontario's strong mayor powers, uh, which were recently granted to Ottawa and Toronto mayors by the Ford government. Now, the powers al- allow mayors to, in effect, uh, circumvent, let's say, checks by elected city councillors. Can you take us through those powers a little bit and how you might ex- uh, how you expect they might be used uh, or not used? Yeah, so j- just uh, I think today, Bill 39 um, was was passed in the, in the legislature, which expands on the original strong mayor powers. And so how, how they're supposed to work or how Ontario had envisioned them is that um, a third of council plus the mayor uh, could pass uh, bylaws legislation um, at council if it aligned with provincial priorities mm-hmm. uh, without having the usual 50% plus, plus one that you would require. And so, um, you know, I think in, for the for the Ford government anyway, it's a way of not implementing priorities that they used around housing is what they had had used as a, as the example of we're not building housing fast enough that um, you know there's a supply issue and that there's there's blocking going on on the housing side and so that that's the example they've been using as something that you know a mayor with those strong mayor powers um, could implement. Now the Bill 39 piece is where the the one third comes in. Um, the original strong mayor legislation had to do with the mayor being able to uh, hire and fire uh, the city manager and deputies um, unilaterally. You, normally, that is a decision of city council. And um, uh, kind of innocuous, other innocuous type of things, but stuff that normally would be, you know, city city council um, purview. And so uh, I guess... This is seen in the states. It's done in the states um, in a few municipalities, but uh, extremely rare and uh, even rarer for um, you know for Canada. We've seen some borough model systems and other things like that, but this is this is completely different and and was has been a, a big stretch, I think, in terms of uh, the way we're used to running things at, at cities. And so, I mean, part of the Ford government's argument is, you know, efficiency, like, well, you know, there's two, we're jammed up here. And and the way to break that jam is to get rid of, you know, people who get in the way, like those who are elected to get in the way. <laughs> and so if we just get rid of them, then, then, the, then governments can do whatever they want. And I'm glad you brought up housing because housing seems to be, I would imagine the issue they have in mind behind this bill, particularly their, their plan to develop 
develop, develop. And it strikes me as if there's a real risk here that uh, the strong mayor powers combined with provincial priorities on development are going to end up being a massive giveaway to housing developers who may or may not build the sorts of housing that that actually we need at the municipal level. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the plan the plan that they have now is not going to work. We're we're not going to see um, this massive build out uh, that they that they hope will happen. Um, you know, what they've done is expanded the urban boundary unilaterally in many cities across the province. Um, there's no guarantee that those things will be built upon by developers that already own a lot of green field space, potentially with already having services on it uh, versus some of this land that's been added with absolutely zero services on it. Um, and the actual plan itself, you know, calls for double what we call for in terms of our actual population growth or the estimates. Those population growth figures over the course of history of the municipality in Ottawa anyway, have been very close. They've been within a percentage point usually um, when predictions are made for our official plan. So, you know, that's, that's, that's the first piece. The second piece is you're not um, going to see developers putting up buildings that there, there's um, not demand for that they're used to getting in, in the market. And um, you, you need to have uh, that, that sufficient, I guess, demand for them to meet what those prices normally would be. And so our staff have pointed out that, look, even if you, you, you pass this legislation and say that, um, you know, cities, uh, mayors can unilaterally do this with one third of council and that they're, you know, we're going to get out of the way. There's no guarantee that that that'll that follows. What follows is just cheaper housing um, supply for the sake of supply isn't isn't just going to create this magical environment that housing becomes cheap again. There, there's much larger factors that play into it around interest rates, around our supply of affordable housing, um, actual purpose built affordable housing by governments and not-for-profits. And so, you know, the concern is while they're decreasing municipal coffers for through things like development charges, parkland fees, things we would normally collect to, to bring higher quality of life to people in our cities, um, that is a, a tax cut to uh, development companies. And there's no guarantee that they're going to pass those things on to the consumers based on what the market is demanding at this point. And so, uh, I think it's a faulty plan, a market market driven plan. We've got a free market, you know, uh, open capitalist style uh, housing built system that is not going to uh, produce the results that that they say it will. And in fact, it'll rob public coffers of funds that we would normally use to build actual public purpose built affordable housing uh, in perpetuity. Do you think these powers are going to be used often? I, I know in Toronto, Meritori suggests that he's all for it, surprising no one. Uh, in Ottawa, I mean, we've heard mixed messages as to whether or not it's going to be used here. Yeah, so now we have to get delegated authority from the mayor for some of these pieces. So uh, the mayor has delegated authority to council um, because of the bills that have been passed here. Uh, to So he he has said he will not be using it, um, Mayor Sutcliffe. And so I you know, appreciate, appreciate that. But that doesn't mean that there's some crisis in the future where, you know, magically it's like, oh, well, you know, we need to use this. We, we were having a crisis. And then in the future, uh, which mayor come, depending on which mayor comes in, uh, that they won't use it. And so, yeah, in Ottawa, it's nice to have some reassurance through the mayor and through the delegation of authority that we've seen thus far. But there's no guarantee in the future. And yeah, and certainly in Toronto, I think, you know, Doug Ford really, really wants to be the mayor of Toronto. Uh, <laughs> 
you know, like his brother, like his brother had. And, and the other day I invited him to run in Capital Ward if you wanted my job so bad, because I, I, I feel like they're, they realize 90% of the services are in municipalities. Uh, that is where, you know, you can change quality of life for the better or the worse. And a lot of their developer friends have been bugging them a lot. They've been lobbying them very, very hard for these types of changes. And uh, they're acquiescing to them on urban sprawl and on, um, you know, exactly what we heard Goba and Boma, like the the, the big builders, been, the, their lobby organizations, exactly what they've been saying to us. Ford did exactly what they've been what they've been telling us, what we've been saying, look, that that's going to lead to the, you know, the depletion of our public coffers. So it's interesting to see uh, how that has happened and, and even more interesting to see how land has been purchased a few months in advance of these urban boundary expansions. Mm -hmm. And then they're magically in the urban boundary expansion. These are donors to the Ford government. And then they're worth 10 times more um, after they've been after they've been granted. So there's a, there's a lot happening right now. Um, with it, with you know, Bill 23, Bill 39, and Bill 109, which took away site plan control from elected members as well. So, uh, in addition to the strong, strong mayor powers. Well, good work if you can get it as a developer. Yeah, no kidding. In a, in a different life, but uh -huh. I, would have, I would have gone into into development and. Uh, no. I yeah, I mean, <laughs> you can. It's just money hand over fist, right? I mean. I, I, I the, the profits that these guys pull in is unbelievable. And they, they speculate on the periphery and it benefits them. The tearing up our farmland, you know, wetland controls being reduced. Um, and and we keep doing this where we move out and out and out. It costs the current city taxpayers a lot of money to subsidize it. And boy, oh boy, are we ever they, they've got a great ride right now. Yeah, I want to I want to dive into a bit about how cities work at at the council level and city staff level in a sec. But it's just worth noting that something that people may be missing is that sprawl is extraordinarily expensive compared to density, especially as you have to extend services and infrastructure out to meet the sprawling low density housing that that doesn't really serve folks. I mean, it's just it's a great way, as you mentioned, sort of for city dwellers to subsidize suburban dwellers. And uh, and for those you you would think people who are worried about taxes would be worried about this, but they're awfully silent. It's it's so funny the dichotomy between I think what would typically be depicted as somebody who might be more on the right and who who say that they really care about uh, you know taxes and tax increases and keeping costs low, while at the same time they are usually the the biggest purveyors of things like sprawl and, and mm -hmm. single use single you know single unit homes on the periphery. Uh, wider roads and expansion of our roads uh, and big public-private partnership deals that often end up costing us much more in the end um, with the risks that we've, we've seen. So interesting how how that works out. And, you know, you can claim you're fiscally responsible all you want, but the facts say something different. I'm I'm trying so hard right now not to get into the LRT. I'm going to push right past the urge because if not, we're going to be here all day. I want to get into the relationship and interplay between a mayor's counselors, city staff, and, and including the city manager, because it's utterly fascinating, uh, fascinating to me. I mean, cities are complicated organizations. They have multiple veto points, checkpoints, balances, and they're designed that way for better or for worse to try to, you know, in a sense, introduce some friction into a process that is, if it's frictionless, uh, can lead to poor outcomes. But of course, sometimes that friction itself leads to poor outcomes, as we have been learning a little bit in, again, I got to do it, uh, the instance of the LRT inquiry. But uh, I'm curious, uh, 
you know, how you see that relationship between elected city councilors and city staff mm -hmm. and the mayor shaping outcomes? Well, I, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I read this really interesting book recently about, about uh, city managers and the, the heads of school boards um, on the staff side and what, you know, why they seek to um, have more control in, you know, an autonomy, I guess, in their roles. And it chalked it up to, you know, their professionalism and wanting to be seen as professional, that they have the facts and they, they are the ones that should be making these decisions. And so often they will use their power in that way from a democratically elected body uh, because they want their expertise recognized and, and implemented in that way, you know, was the was the main point of it. Um, and so I found that interesting because it's not just for a sake of power and control that they that they want that, but that there is a, you know, there's a there's a backing that they feel academically or otherwise that you know, through experience that they feel works best. And, and that's why, you know, that 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 kind of usurping of power would go on. Um, but but I think, um, you know, on the whole of it, what we've seen in our city anyway has been. Uh, a, a real swing of the pendulum over towards uh, much less council control, a much stronger mayor's office, just like we saw in the federal government and in, in PMO. Uh, we're seeing that now in Ontario and many larger cities into the mayor's office um, where they, they can control debate. Uh, they're able to, uh, I guess, utilize city managers and senior staff who unfortunately have been all too willing to go along with uh, a plan just just because the mayor has endorsed it, but that's not how our democracy was supposed to work. It's supposed to be, you know, everyone on council has a vote and they're supposed to go with the will of council. Uh, but we weren't seeing that occur uh, in all kinds of decisions last term. Uh, they'd bring things just knowing, okay, the mayor's on side here, and we, you know, we can we can get away with this one, uh, rather than you know going to 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 hear the express will of of council. And so. Um, I think, you know, there's unfortunately a, a big important push now that has to come from the other side. And that is, that is municipal, uh, you know, autonomy uh, amongst elected officials, um, ensuring that we've got the public's best interest in mind, that we're meaningfully in, in engaging them and not just for, for show. I mean, for years, our consultations, people just go to them and think, well, what's the point of, of doing this if I, my, my, my views aren't going to be reflected back in that report and that those final outcomes? Um, and, you know, instead of just checking a box, actually do the work and, you know, come up with something that really truly benefits folks. And if that means tweaking our plans and or make, making bigger changes to our plans, then so be it. So um, I, I, I've seen it happen over the course of 10 years here anyway, as I followed council before I was a city councillor. And uh, it, it was horrendous on consultations on things like Lansdowne, uh, on the LRT, uh, on, um, you know, our, our housing um, uh, and development, land use development. Over and over again, public would show up and say one thing and we'd end up doing another. And so, um, you know, that that really has to change and be better reflective of uh, what the public actually is saying. And part and parcel of that is the power of the mayor and city staff being politicized in some ways with the mayor uh, to, to usurp that power for various reasons. It's that I, I can't help it. I've resisted long enough, but it just <laughs> it makes me think of Parks and Recreation, which is, is one of the better documentary series about city governance. I mean, it truly, it truly is something, but the, the 
I, I find the consultation process particularly interesting because if, if we conceive of democracy through a pluralist lens, the idea is, well, look, a bunch of different groups uh, and movements and interests have power and they come together in the public sphere to sort out how we're going to live together. And that power is meant to be sort of balanced out. Uh, it doesn't seem to play out that way at the municipal level in this country. And it seems, as you suggest, to be shifting even more into the power does into the hands of a, of a handful of people. And this idea that, well, we're going to do away with the friction, which is part of the logic of the strong mayor's uh, powers is, is really just a, a giveaway to, to the powerful to, to decide how the city's going to work. So I, I want to now dig in, having said that uh, into your role as a, as a representative, because that's what you are. You're an elected representative of a ward, not all cities have wards. We're going to get into that in a minute. But in this case, we do, and and that's what you are. So, uh, you know, how do you conceive of your duties and responsibilities as a, an elected member who represents a ward? Are you a delegate or a trustee to borrow that old dual models? Are you there on behalf of the residents of the ward, or are you there to exercise your own judgment based on what you think is is best for the city and for them? Right. I mean, I, I you know, inherently there there ends up being a bit of a dual role i'm i'm here as a representative of of the people that sent me here first and foremost and i try to reflect their views as much as possible while recognizing i had a platform i ran on that you know i i you know described what i was going to do and that that was different than other candidates and um you know the election happened that way but on individual issues um, you know, people will reach out and express their views from our ward, and I take those things very, very seriously. So we have both a ward perspective, and not to be, you know, you have to watch for parochialism and and uh, just trying to, you know, get things for your ward, um, and, and really balance that with the needs of a city, and and what's best for the city, and where people uh, with lower income may require more services than the loudest folks or the folks with the most wealth. And, you know, I have a, a mix of that in, in my ward, certainly. So um, there's a bit of a dual role to, to balance that and, and how you came on in, in a platform as well as the citywide versus versus ward needs. So, but for the most part, I try to be a representative of people that sent me here and, and do do well for them and, uh, and, you know, best as possible implement their their views. And so given that, I mean, and if we value that, and I suspect many city councillors would, would echo your sentiments, um, then reducing the, the role of councillors in the governance of the city is, a, is effectively reducing the role of residents in the governance of the city, right? I mean, it's the idea that, well, technocrats can figure this out, and at the top are the servants of the capital class, and they know what's best, and everyone else can just deal with it right because there really is very little recourse for regular regular folks to push back against this process right i mean you could not elect doug ford but you know day to day it's not there's not like there's a ton you can do unless we have a mass movement to to fight back and we're sort of in the middle of several different mass movements of that uh, that are necessary to fight back against things, right? So you know, this, you can see how this might fall down the order of priorities as we deal with other things, but it it is a remarkably significant shift. In part for the reason you mentioned earlier, which is cities are where it all happens. It's where the sort of core of your day to day life gets gets decided for the most part, right? That, that's it. And I mean, we we really have shifted towards more of a technocracy uh, here. I talk about it with my my team here all the time, um, and you know. <laughs> 
who is the ultimate arbiter of this of this park in our ward and and why or why not something not can happen there um and so i i look at i guess the past you know i guess 12 years while while you know jim watson was in power and it was marked by less open government i mean things as simple as you know council votes were made harder to find online making it difficult for citizens residents to actually you know hold people to account later on uh, we had huge developer influence through that time with adding of, of lands that uh, city staff recommended against in our urban sprawl. We had, uh, you know, Porsche dealership tax breaks against the public interest, people that did not want this, uh, and yet it went forward. Things as simple as a an addition to a heritage structure like the Chateau Laurier, massive pushback from residents still pushed through uh, by that government. Transit fare increases during the pandemic, right? totally opposed by the vast majority of, of residents here, yet still pushed through, um, backed and facilitated by a technocracy in, in our municipality and by a, a mayor almost more beholden to them than, than, than the people. So um, it's disheartening in a lot of ways because you can, you can have these, um, you can have people show up and, and know it through, through polling or other, you know, the emails that we got, I think thousands of emails came in on, on the Chateaulory issue, and and still, even with that, not have the outcome that, for all intents and purposes, seems like the public wants mm -hmm. the people that we're supposed to represent. I found I find it very difficult, and and holding people to account is is even more difficult after they make those decisions. It's become easy enough to to push those things through for certain interests, and then still manage to get reelected once every four years. Um, maybe just by being a, a decent constituency rep in another way. And so, um, or name recognition, you know, mm -hmm. so it, it's a bit disheartening in, in that, in that way. And I find that politics at all levels, you know, um, has been, has been that way. And the, the holding to account is very difficult. I, the mass movement we saw from QP and education workers recently in Ontario gave me some, you know, motivation and um, the, the potential for, you know, a general strike and what that could have could have wrought on Ontario. Um, it's almost like you need that sort of thing all the time <laughs> for, mm -hmm. for, for so many of these decisions that that just seem completely against the public will. Yeah, I, I can imagine if Ottawa was ever going to strike over something. It's hard to imagine this city striking over something given. Given what it what it is, but uh, I can imagine the Chateau Laurier being that thing. It's just the most Ottawa niche thing. And for folks who weren't following this or who don't don't live here, then this was a significant addition, expansion of the Chateau Laurier that, that people oppose for different reasons. One of them being, it is ugly as sin. <laughs> it's truly hideous. I, I don't know how you make one that's not hideous, incidentally. I find the Chateau Laurier to be not particularly impressive as a building. I think it's kind of tacky. Mm -hmm. But um, the, this certainly wasn't going to make it better. <laughs> And yet, and, and, but I mean, I remember watching that thinking, it really is an example of everything that's wrong with municipal governance that this thing is going down the way it is. Absolutely. It's been part of a broader transition, right? You, you, you get residents referred to as customers and clients mm -hmm. now. It's, it's very transactional based service. And, and this, this sort of, um, you know, will of the public has kind of gone on the wayside to be a, just a, it's a transactional service we're providing to you. Um, but don't, don't speak up too loudly about what needs to change. So, yeah. um, yeah, it's really unfortunate, but 
That and, and, and the LRT, I mean, you mentioned the, the LRT. I've mentioned it a few times. It's hard not to. I mean, it really, truly was just a massive, massive mess of a project. Transit, I mean, here's the thing. There's a lot of great elements of, of Ottawa public transit. I use it when it works. It works particularly well. It's, it's fantastic to hop on the O train and head downtown. Uh, you know you've got there because you start to smell sulfur. That's a different, we can have that discussion a different time. For whatever reason, folks, the, the, uh, the Rito station smells of sulfur and it's awful wait the Rito station or the parliament station yeah uh, the, the, the Rito station yeah and it is it's absolutely wretched and uh, it really does smell like you've entered the gates of hell um but you know when it, when it works it works well and there's new stations popping up right we've got uh, you know a line being expanded uh, i, I want to get into this i have to i was trying not to but I, we've got to get into a little bit at least you know but let's try to focus at least. What does the LRT debacle in Ottawa tell us about the state of municipal governance? We, we don't have to get into the whole thing. Sure. Folks can look it up. It was a giant mess. There's been an inquiry. The inquiry revealed how much of a mess it was. But what does it tell us about the state of how this city works? It, it describes exactly what we've been talking about, the the, the bureaucracy and, and, and the power that they exercise over what they distribute to council with the mayor and other key players in the know, uh, knowing that uh, what council was being told was misinformation and deliberately, deliberately being misled um, by a senior staff team that didn't want any more headaches from an elected body or questions to be asked. Uh, I think it shows the decline in public service. Uh, you know, this is a public-private partnership that was launched, and it's very critical of P3s uh, in the report. And we've been moving more and more towards that. You look at our top three debts in the city of Ottawa, they are all P3s. Uh, and so I think there, there's a story there about um, the corporatization, the, the, the farming out of services from public service to, to, to private entities. Um, I think, you know, it, it shows overwhelmingly um, that there is a real, I guess, lack of uh, care for um, serving serving residents, that they are not top of mind. It, it is the, what would seem to be top of mind, which Judge Horgan found was, you know, that they wanted the transactional relationship between the private sector and the public sector to uh, protect their protect their own interests, um, their reputational interests, but it wasn't at the end of the day about delivering better service for residents. Uh, and, you know, I think that is, it's so illustrative of, of where we've been. Um, and I, I talked to a reporter the other day who had reported heavily on this, Joanne Canello, and, and, you know, she just said, look, you, you want to look at the last decade, last 12 years and more, it's all in there, right? This kind of move towards new public management, a lot, you know, the Watson years, um, it's it's all there. And so incredible to, to see that report come out now. And the reaction here has been OK. Um, we, we've got city staff understanding they need to change. But so much of that, the way that that happened, right, where there was division that was fostered amongst city council. Um, you're either in or you're out. You're the part of the mayor's circle and you vote with him every single time. And. You, you kiss the ring and you, you get what you want in a committee and your budget or you don't and you're on the outs. You're not going to be told things. You're going to things are going to be hidden from you and you're going to be you know diminished in the public or other ways um, that don't feel nice. And, and that very much is kind of at the root of a lot of this, that 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 
uninvolvement, uh, the fact that if you're an independent voice, you are sidelined. Doesn't matter if you were on the left or the right. If you were independent, you were sidelined. And so, and and the bureaucracy, the staff, our senior staff, bought right into that um, that political playbook. So, really interesting to read that report. So. What about council itself? Now, we've talked a little bit about the relationship between cities and the province, cities and, and staff, uh, sorry, city council and staff. What about within the council itself? Now, Ottawa has two dozen councillors, and there are obvious ideological distinctions between them. Uh, you know, what happens in council chambers reflects some of the governance process, but there's there's more to it. So, I mean, how does the relationship internally among councillors shape outcomes, and uh, and how does that shape the the city? It, it matters uh, a heck of a lot, more than people realize. Um, and, and I say that now because we're, we've started a new term. We have a new mayor. We've got 11 new city councillors, and it's a, it's a brand new body. And walking into this term of council compared to last term, it's like night and day. You feel, I don't know, a sense of purpose coming in now. Uh, you feel positive about coming into the office to achieve something because you're trying to work together for the betterment of the city, despite your differences. Um, it, whereas previously, you know, you, you would walk into the office feeling dejected because you, you knew that your relationship with some of those counselors was not gonna be positive because of your core beliefs. And uh, to some extent that still exists. I know, I know it was early in the term, but you know, you can very much alienate yourself by speaking what you think your residents would want you to say and what you personally believe um, and saying it, you know, forcefully enough, but not attacking people, but being clear on your policy objectives. And certainly, you know, for me and a few other counselors, uh, you know, that was seen as unacceptable. You, you couldn't talk like that. You couldn't be you know, you know, concerned about these things that uh, they didn't want their reputation to be called into question around, like things like the lack of affordable housing or spending seven times as much on one road as we do on affordable housing um, in in one year. And, you know, so when those things started to be questioned, people were very uh, upset about it. And and um, the relationship with with counselors um, is deteriorated. So it's, it's actually quite hard. I, I think if you're willing to compromise your principles a little bit, then there's some potential for, you know, um, uh, I guess some, I don't know, horse trading and that sort of thing. But if you're not, and if you're if you're steadfast on what you want to see and you're you're trying to push objectives, then it's much more difficult to to just to get along and to go along what's what's happening internally. But Maintaining those relationships is extremely important. I'm trying very hard this term to make sure that we've got, you know, a lot of the new counselors educated on things and then old uh, other counselors that have been here uh, understanding the perspective of what went wrong last term with this new LRT report outlining it so perfectly as a hammer to say, look, if this can't happen again. And so I'm hoping that that helps with the relationship building and it matters a heck of a lot for policymaking. It's funny because because just your personality and your 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 interpersonal relationships with with counselors matters so much it shouldn't. It should not matter this much, but it really does. It plays a big difference in policymaking. Is the is the pressure to to log roll as intense as I expect it would be this idea of, look man, if you jam up my road, I'm going to jam up your housing development. I'm going to jam up your affordable housing. I'm going to jam up your parks. 
Uh, and because especially since it is a small group of people, it's two dozen counselors and a mayor. So, you you know, it's not like a chamber, like the House of Commons, where you've got 338 people or a provincial legislature where you may have 100. It's a small group of people. And we know when, when it's a small group of people, you can't help but be close uh, to one another. I mean, in proximity, if not in uh, affection, you know, you're, you're there and you've got to see each other in the hall and everyone knows your business and you know all of theirs. I mean, so is, is you know, is it tempting to say, my God, OK, fine, take your stupid road. Widen, widen the goddamn airport parkway. road, yeah. parkway, which, by the way, terrible idea. Don't do yes. it. Yeah. Uh, in what world? In what world? Anyway, mm-hmm. different issue. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's another issue for another time. Um, you know, or, or, or else, right? I mean, the, the pressure then to, to log roll must be pretty intense. It, it's, a, it's incredibly high. Uh, and that's it. And it, so it takes a lot to resist that pressure and just stay true to what you believe in. And, you know, again, s- speak at council about these things that you're concerned about. Again, without being personally vindictive just talking about policy alone. It's so easy to roll over because you could say, look, oh, I'll just give on this one. And, you know, that's 20 years down the road and my residents won't really care that much right now. And maybe I'll get, you know, this, you know, this 5 million I need for a park or something in my ward. And so, and because the mayor really wants that to happen, he'll, he'll make it happen in the budget, you know? So it's, it would be extremely easy to roll over or, you know, you get a chairship or, you know, your, your chair planning committee or, or whatnot, and, and your profile is raised and then you're able to, you know, work with those city staff as a kind of minister of planning to make sure that your, your, your area is developed the way you want it to be developed, but you're, you're trading off your, you know, speaking up or your vows and principles. The, the greatest example was our finance committee where, the people on there were all very subservient to the mayor. We had no critical voices there. No one from the urban area was on that and no critical voices, no independence from the suburbs or left or right. And so, you know, we end up with this very status quo that is continued. It's very easy to continue the status quo based on this type of model of governance where things are offered, horse trading occurs and uh, power is afforded to people um, that are willing to stay quiet. So. Um, I had a personally just hell of a term because of because of these things, because we weren't willing to stay quiet. We weren't going to horse trade for some meaningless, you know, uh, position. And it ended up costing, you know, just per- personally just costing you so much, um, I guess, mental health. Right? <laughs> that's that's really where it would be. You go home at the end of the day, you're feeling dejected and, and upset about it because you're not always getting along with all those colleagues. But it's because you're just, you know, you, you try to maintain your principles. And so um, it's easy to not, I think, for for a lot of counselors. I want to close out now. The theme of this episode is how cities work. And I want to close out on something that I think of as fun. Now, you don't, as a listener, have to think of this as fun. Sean, I think you're going to think of it as fun. But I think of it as fun. And that is the structure of, of city elections and the distribution of representation. Now, I want you to theorize or muse a little bit about how structure uh, dictates function here. And Ottawa has wards and no parties. Mm-hmm. Some cities do things differently. Vancouver, for instance, has parties, but doesn't have any wards, uh, which is an interesting dynamic. So in theory, you could have parties, no parties, wards, no wards, and any mix of those two things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think the, you know, having wards and no parties affects how the city works? And would it be different if we had parties, better or worse, for instance, or if we had no wards for that matter? 
Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting. I I do love that question because you know you also see in, because in, you're a you're a massive nerd because <laughs> you are a giant nerd like me. Absolutely. You you look in Quebec too, right? There's party system throughout throughout the, those municipalities. Uh, super interesting uh, to see it. Uh, so part of me loves a party system because you can, you know, work with each other, come up with common ideas, and run on a a, a shared platform of ideas that. It really means a big sea shift potentially in a city uh, with the backing of both a, a mayor and councillor candidates that can come in and really, I think, you know, potentially make positive change. Um, so, so that's attractive in, in some ways. Um, but I think what's possibly more attractive for me anyway is that without parties, your door knocking, your your independence, your individual wards become so much more important. I'm not just running for, you know, the liberals or Democrats or conservatives or Greens, whatever. I'm not running for them. I'm me. I'm at your doorstep. I'm talking to you or I'm on your bus and I'm talking to you. And that interaction matters so much more to, to somebody going to the polls um, than if there was a party system and they're just voting for the brand, right? So in terms of not having a party here, very much easier, I think, to start to transition to a more, you know, my view, progressive government that will um, better represent people if you're organized enough uh, across the city. So you can be organized without a party, but that mm-hmm. just means reaching out outside of your ward and and talking with others and making sure that good community association presidents run and good you know, student leaders run, those sorts of things. Uh, and so I guess in an ideal world, it's a it's a award based system, but with a strong advocacy uh, base, a group that that does this work and helps this work. Progress Toronto does this sort of thing. Um, that sort of thing is extremely important, I think, and and would be, you know, my I, that's that's ideal, I think. So, do you think the the existence of wards encourages a kind of parochialism, though? This idea that you know I'm here to get park for from parks for my ward. I don't care about the broader city. That's not true of you. It is true of a handful of councillors, um, of in wherever the system exists, because it's very easy to be narrow, narrowly focused. Because the folks that you're going to have to meet at election time are the folks who are, are in your ward. You don't have to worry about uh, you know other wards. And in in Ottawa in particular, it's interesting. Because we are a just a, a massive behemoth monstrosity of a city in which the the suburbs or the super duper suburbs, so many kilometers into the periphery, have very very different interests than say the urban core where where most people uh, in terms of density live, right? And that that produces a fascinating dynamic where sometimes I look at some of these, you know, rural ward councilors and think, what are you even doing here, man? Like, like, like c- come on. Just, just we need just let's have a different council for over the, for that far because if you if you have to drive halfway to Peterborough to get to to the councilor, maybe that should be a different city. That's a different debate. But I mean, the idea is that that Ward sort of encourage that kind of thinking and and discourage a sort of good of the city thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you, Mike Harris, for that. Right, the amalgamation yeah. and then, you know, God. in Section ninety one ninety two of the Constitution, we're we're creatures of the province, and uh, there you go. They they can decide whichever way they want to go on that thing, and that's the way we've gone. And it's been really it's been really difficult. The rural areas actually really didn't want it. Um, it did some urban and even some places like Nepean, suburban area. You know, tax free at that time, no or debt free. I think they said at that time, and now now. Of course, there's there's municipal debt where we're all responsible for it. But I think, you know, to your fundamental question, 
um, you know, yes, wards do encourage ward bosses, a parochialism that will occur. You know, that, that is going to occur in a ward-based system. And so a system where you've got some wards, but there is a, a few other members elected at large across the city, not just the mayor, because the mayor uses that as a hammer. I was the only one elected across the city. I'm the only one who can speak for the entire city. My platform is getting put in place. Having some citywide elected council, like, you know, councillors, and that's why the borough system was interesting in Montreal for a time. Um, that that also I think can can lend credence, but I, I wouldn't want to lose that independence of of, of not having a a party. And I've gone back and forth on this in my life because I've 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 run you know different I tried to run candidates across the city in the past you know twelve years ago things like that uh, without having a a full party system, but a structure that that emulated mm -hmm. it, um, but still with that independent you know ward ward based system. So. I think the borough model is interesting, and then having some some councillors elected citywide would really, you know, would help balance out those priorities while still having a, a ward system that you recognize. Yes, there's going to be ward boss mentality uh, and parochialism that'll that'll still occur there. Well, I mean, that brings us to time. The only thing I care about in municipal government is uh, coyotes, because my ward. <laughs> you want to do with coyotes. the coyotes? Well, we should we should build them a home somewhere else. I don't I don't want to put them down or anything like that. They're beautiful creatures, but I also don't want them to kill my dog. Yes, agreed. I think that's that's the better solution. I mean, you know, as we develop, we're encroaching on their uh -huh. space where we are. Hundred percent. So, yeah, we it, we've uh, got a problem. I think uh, on that one. So, I think they were they were calling for a while too. Um, and ideally, they're placed into a spot that they can thrive, but that won't be developed on, but in Ottawa, <laughs> I don't know exactly. how in the future. Or, and yeah, you could fit Edmonton, Toronto, Calgary, Montreal, all in Ottawa's boundary. It is ridiculously large. Yeah, we're going to have to ship them to Saskatchewan if we're going to escape the <laughs> the gravity of this increasing. I mean, the, the city is so big, it has its own gravitational field. <laughs> that big. Uh, anyways, that again, there's like 40 different episodes in my head I want to do now for this conversation, but I'm not. I, yeah, we got to pick and choose. We got to prioritize. I'm glad we prioritize this one, though. That brings us to time. Thank you so much for joining me. This was great. Thanks, David. Really fun to talk to you. And as always, thanks to Carolyn Smith, Ross Clark, and Aisha Jarrah, who make the show not just possible, but infinitely better than it would be. So much better than it would be. The size of the city of Ottawa better than it would be without them <laughs> thanks to them and thanks to everyone who's listened uh, from the east of ottawa to the west of ottawa all the way to neptune appreciate it we'll see you back here in two weeks